What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Thanks for listening to Miss Education today. I'm sitting with two. I feel like I'm I, I'm sitting with the powerhouses today, and I can't. I'm kind of giddy about it. Um, it's weird because it's the middle of the day, and generally speaking, when I do Miss Education, I have like two at least giant glasses of wine. So, good luck to me today. <laughs> I have nothing to ease my nerves as I sit and talk with giants. Um, but today's guests are Jean Russell and Roland Toscano, and I'm going to give them the, the floor to introduce themselves um, and to do most of the talking today because they are really cool to listen to. So who wants to go first, Jean or Roland? Go ahead, Jean. I'm, I'm pointing at you, Roland. How are you? <laughs> Your arm keeps disappearing. <laughs> well, well, how would you like us to start out, Jen? Is there any... Um... No, so, why don't you just tell us, okay, Jean, Jean, you are the executive director, is that your official title of CAST Schools? Yes. And so how did that come about? Tell us a little bit about how you got, you've been on the podcast before, so if anybody's listened to um, Miss Education for a minute, you've heard Jean talk already, but I think let's just start there and see where it goes. Well, it's actually a good place to start because Roland was part of the original Sweet. design. So see how I did that, Roland? That was nice. <laughs> so, nice. Um, so the Centers for Applied Science and Technology, which is CAS schools, is a network of primarily high schools. And it really was, from the very beginning, a co-design. So we had a committee of educators of business leaders, of some other types of leaders, workforce, et cetera. And we said, what would it look like to really blow up high school in a way that it was not just about college readiness, which we all deeply believe in, but really helping kids think more broadly about purpose and their life purpose. And so what career and college sitting underneath that? And from an industry perspective, it was how do we how do we better prepare people for the jobs that are coming at us? But, you know, education sometimes doesn't have an opportunity to really um, catch up or react as quickly as industry does. And so, I mean, Roland, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about Roland was one of our great, um, he really saw it in his own community, but he also saw it in his own family, right? It was, you had a family member, your daughter who was studying Mm to be a dentist and you kept saying, I just wanted to touch the teeth. (laughs) Yeah, we're investing quite heavily in his Uh, college education and he was pretty sure he wanted to be a dentist but uh, he had never touched teeth he'd never looked inside someone's mouth he'd never been in a dentist office other than being a patient and so you know there has to come a point in time where you know we help kids find you know what they're interested in you know of course along the way hopefully discover whether they're actually good at it (laughs) Uh, and even better is this 
something that's going to be an opportunity on the horizon, right? With such a dynamic economy, you got to kind of marry all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I just felt like, you know, given that my career is in K-12, that we had to do better than just saying, let's get academically ready and get you to college or university without any idea about what pathway or pathways that I've narrowed down my journey uh, post-secondary to, to pursue. And uh, so, yeah, I was all on board uh, with this notion of, uh, you know, K-12 higher ed and business industry partnerships to realize that for our students. And if you didn't already know, because I don't think we said it yet, but Mr. Toscano is the superintendent of East Central ISD. Um, and East Central and CAST are partners. So we have our newest CAST school is CAST Lead, and it is partnering with East Central. So it's located at the John Glenn campus. Um, and so this is how this little triad of people came to be. Um, I, I met Jean on the podcast and then decided that when she offered to let me help with the design um, or coaching through a design year. I was super excited about that. And then I met Roland through that partnership because who I was coaching was Wendy, um, who's leading the Cass Lead High School. Um, so it's been, it's been kind of a really cool evolution of meeting people and then watching sort of from afar how things work um, because Wendy and I were really in the weeds of like opening a school. Um, now that the school is open, I'm starting to learn how the partnerships really work. And I know Jeannie said like blowing up the way we do things, especially in high school. And that takes, that takes a, a it's a bold step. And I think having the superintendent say like, yes, let's do that is a big deal. Um, and I think it's kind of cool too, Roland, to hear you talk about why why you would be okay with that and it coming from a really personal space of like, I've lived this out. Um, I'm living that out too right now because I have a senior in high school who has no idea what he, he, he has vague ideas of what he might want to do. Um, and I think, yeah, this is really important that people get some practical application before they do something like, I think it's important if you want to be a dentist that you actually see teeth and open, <laughs> touch them. Um, that would be critical information as you decide if you're really going to spend your life doing that. Um, I also have learned that what you think you want to spend your life doing evolves over time as you evolve as a person. Um, I never would have imagined hosting a podcast as I was teaching fifth grade, Um, but it's one of my favorite things to do now. And one thing that I appreciate so much about the cast partnership is that there's a lot of curiosity built into it. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like, Let's see what you like and what you're good at and what, how can we translate that into your, into what your life's purpose is. Um, And that's a big, that's a big thing for high schoolers, I think. Um, So I'm, I'm a little bit, how do you, how do you guys, that's my view of CAS, but how do you think it's going? Well, one of my favorite things is when I get to go to CAS is that Roland's often there. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I mean, I think it's been an interesting challenge to open a high school during a pandemic year. But if you set that aside, I think that that school is, is, I mean, I think each iteration we get a little bit stronger. And I think y'all had an amazing design year. And it's been so powerful to see how that advisory committee, which is made up of mostly industry 
has stayed so connected, even though their industry, frankly, has been among the most impacted, hard hit, kind of in turmoil, you see them almost leaning in to say, you know, these are the types of skills and attributes, those of us who are willing to sort of surf this wave and adapt and come up with new iterations are coming out stronger. And this is what we desperately want to communicate to educators and young people, which is kind of a really interesting, fun place to be. So I I just love um, how Lead is, it's our smallest school, but I think it's really becoming such a special place so quickly. I don't know how you feel, Roland. Well, I love that point because you're exactly right. You know, one of the things that we need to be doing in our schools is make them very agile, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that ultimately children need to be agile. That needs to be part of their skill set that they've developed is that they are very agile. They're, you know, the jobs and careers that we envision for them, many of which don't exist, are going to require them to have not only foundational literacies, obviously academically, reading, writing, communicating, speaking, arithmetic, basic financial literacy, right? Like that's not changed, Uh, but they're going to have to have these skill sets that enable them to really think critically and solve problems and all those buzzwords that we've talked about in education. But the reality of it is they've got to be able to adapt to whatever present reality because their reality is going to be, you know, not 40 years in a pension and a white picket fence, it's going to be 14 to 20 different careers or a combination of all at the same time. Here we are talking to Jen, right? Who's a very eclectic and very diverse in her professions. Uh, but that's the, that's the new normal in this economy, right? And so here our kids are being mentored and having access to these industry leaders in hospitality and tourism and e-commerce and retail that have been hammered hospitality in particular. Um, and they're watching them evolve and adapt and reinvent and hopefully come out the other side, thriving stronger than they ever were before. And what a lesson to, to see firsthand and to, in many ways, experience through their PBLs. I mean, I was walking through the building the other day and they're diving into problems they want to solve, whether that's service, uh, whether that's, uh, I think one group was telling me that they want to um, find ways to use AI uh, to automate, you know, college application process and so on and so forth so that it's much more seamless. Uh, And these are 14 year old kids, right? Like trying to solve real problems uh, as they learn content at the right time. Yeah, you know, I love that you said that because one of the things I like most about our schools is I feel like maybe because we're small, but we really treat young people as like they have something to offer, like Mm -hmm. young adults who come to the table with gifts. And our job is really just to help them unlock those gifts. Yeah, And I think a small setting makes that easier to do. I also think the project-based learning model where you immediately have to step up in different, I mean, you're always going to have a role that's got responsibilities with it you're always going to end up having to make a presentation. (laughs) You know, these are sort of built into the project based learning room. But I I feel like, um, you know, our young people, um, even in ninth grade, your cast lead students are already like, they'll show up at a network wide. They're on it. You know, they're, they have presence, they have poise. And maybe that's because they grew up in East Central and was already doing that. But I just I just think it's great the way we're asking them to show up um, 
as young adults who have voice in their education and who have and what they want to learn and has it matters and they have different choices as they work their way through these projects you know it's um it's exciting to see how they take ownership of that it is and you said something really intriguing about um helping kids find the gifts that they bring right because all children are gifted yes yeah all children are curious Mm -hmm. Uh, and wendy and jen and i were actually talking about a lot of things uh (laughs) last week but that topic came up because wendy had mentioned uh, the large number of students uh, who had been identified as gifted and talented in this small cohort Mm -hmm. of cast students and the reality of it is is if you think about the learning environments the conditions that have been created it's what you would typically see in a GT environment where it's very collaborative. Right. It's very research driven. It's very product uh, based, right? You're, you're going to perform something. You're going to produce something. You're going to apply what you're learning in a meaningful way to solve problems and, and to innovate, right? Like that's a gifted environment, but that should be the environment for all kids and access comes before achievement. We know and here these kids, these kids are, whether they've been identified formally as gifted or not, they're in this rich learning environment, mm-hmm. given access to such conditions. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got more quote unquote gifted kids. Well, we've just identified their gifts they, they already had. And I love that notion because we've deselected so many children yeah. uh, in our previous iterations of gifted education. For sure. For sure. I think what's interesting, too, to me is that it happens with teachers, too. I think that all the things we just described as happening for students simultaneously are happening for the professionals in the building, too. And teachers, we talked about this on Friday, too, is like they are they have a new autonomy and it's rare that they or they've expressed that it's not been the common case in their professional life to have somebody say, you're the expert, you decide. And then and it's really the conversations coming about because East Central um, practices standard based grading and they have been practicing. You guys have been practicing standard based grading for a lot of years, right? Yeah. So as a system, as we, we piloted with a couple of campuses about seven years ago, but for about, this is our fifth year as a system uh, implementing standards-based grading. And um, yeah, it's essentially saying that, uh, you know, our job is to provide learning experiences, gather evidence of progress towards mastery of the standards that we're charged with making sure kids master, right? And uh, the reality of it is, is kids come to us and they, they continue to learn and prove to us uh, that we've taught them well over time. And they, they build towards that five or hundred or mastery level. They don't start with a hundred and then fall short by turning in something late or do terrible on a test the first time they try to demonstrate that they've learned a new difficult concept, right? And then their efforts over time begin to be more and more futile because by God, when you average that 20 and that 50 and that Mm -hmm. 60, I cannot recover as opposed to if I just keep working hard, uh, that that smart is what I become, right? right? Like our, our way of marking, if you will, giving students feedback of their progress in the learning should foster persistence, should foster kids to continue to strive to learn and do better through continuous practice, 
and continuous focus and continuous effort, not the alternative. And, uh, you know, teachers ask, well, well, how do I, how do I handle the retest? I mean, do they, do they have to take the same test or what if they didn't do well on a previous task? Do, do they have to do the same thing all the other kids did? And I said, all you have to do is get kids to prove to you that they've mastered it. However you need to do that because this child is the only child that you're evaluating irrespective of any others. We're not interested in rank ordering or comparing one kid to the next and one kid's learning journey to the next. So you do as the expert, what you believe to be right for this child. And you're the expert. You're empowered to make that decision. You don't need to ask me for permission. So do you need to interview the kid? Do you need to give them an open-ended exam? Do you need to ask them to do some other performance task? Do you need them to do one math problem instead of the 50 that they practiced on the first time? That's your call. When you're satisfied, you have the evidence you need, then you reflect that in the grade book. So it's messy. I can't give you a binder. So messy. And yeah. it's so like scenario based, right? It depends on the kid. It depends on the time. It's, sometimes it depends on the time of the day. Um, and, and I think it's um, interesting because it's so atypical from what we usually do in school you, or what I've seen done in school, which is like, you must have one to two grades per content area per week. And those are like the final grade. So the opportunity to turn something in expires in 48 hours whether you know it better in 48 hours or not. Um, and then you have a grade reporting cycle. It's very structured. Uh, and that is not what's happening in CAS schools or in, in, in East Central specifically. So it's just an interesting, it's, it's fun for me to get to sit on the outside and watch that and then to coach um, through yeah. that is really, it's really interesting. And project-based learning really lends itself to yeah, standards-based yeah. grading. Um, it's an adjustment though, because you have to get used to thinking like there's no expiration date on your learning. So if you don't know it today and today was the due date, but you know it tomorrow, you're still good. Well, not only are you still good on the other side of it, you're not off the hook, right? Which That's very true. Which is the other side of traditional grades oftentimes let kids off the hook. So you didn't get it done on Wednesday. I'm going to put that 50 or zero or whatever in the grade book. And we move on. It doesn't let us off the hook as educators and it doesn't let the kids off the hook. At the end of the day, all means all, all children are going to get from where they are to where they need to be and beyond. And uh, it doesn't matter if you learn it on Wednesday or Friday or next Tuesday, what matters is that you are going to learn it and you're going to prove it. It also uh, moves us away from grades as associated with behavior. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I, I, I don't, I think it's a major paradigm shift, right? Because I think even, I mean, I'm a former teacher. I think one of the things that's ingrained sometimes as a teacher is like good students behave a certain way, right? And that's not actually always the case. And it's like I say to my own children, I just want you to be the best Marcos you can be. Like, I'm not, you know, there's no like, I don't have an outcome for you that I've already preordained. I want you to figure out what it is you need to do and then let me help you do that. But it does require a real shift if you're used to thinking like being a good student involves like acting a certain way in class, participating in a certain way, et cetera. And I, and I do think, I mean, to just be fair to educators, I think it is hard if you've been spending your whole 
whole life, you know, sort of saying you get a participation grade or you get a, you know, and, um, and not everybody participates in the same way, you know? Yeah, no, it's a stretch. I mean, I think, you know, it's not uncommon to have somebody think like, you're going to get a 50 because I need to get your attention. So you'll be oh. differently. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. I mean, I think, you know, the whole system and, and, and this, I would say like, in particular, it's true in Texas, but it's true sort of nationally as well. We do have so much compliance baked into the system that to start thinking differently, um, you know, you're in some ways you're being disruptive within the system, right? You're trying to figure out how can I create a different paradigm that allows people to learn in different ways and really allows people to be successful in different ways within a system that's still going to give me a letter grade. <laughs> that's, you know, so there's, there's some counter pressures as well. And, and I think that's real. I think it's important to name that because, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about, is there any industry that actually gives itself like a letter grade? I mean, I think, you know, you have things like, you know, you have certain compliance standards like OSHA and things like that. Or are there any companies that actually, you know, rank their employees? Like, in because it just doesn't feel, um, when you think of it from like human-centered design, it doesn't feel like a healthy way to approach right human beings, right. and particularly young people. And yet we do it so aggressively starting at such a young age, you know, like, uh, yeah. And it, and you start seeing it ripple up, right? Like right. most things come down the hill, this one goes up. So now we're thinking about ranking teachers and performance-based pay and master teacher things that are tied to accountability systems. And it is, it's just another layer of complication. I think like, and it can be stressful. Uh, it depends on the person who's stressed out about that and who's not. But it is complicated. I think teaching in itself is complicated and learning is complicated. And we're not, uh, I don't think we necessarily solve for all the complications when we have like this really simplistic way of like, you're either an A student or you're an F student. Well, that's not very complicated. The person is complicated and who's teaching that person is a really complicated person. Um, and it's a complex thing to have to learn something. Um, and another another layer of like standards-based grading and, and project-based learning is that you actually failure as part of the design. So that not being let off the hook and not, not saying like, well, we've, we've moved on from that. And that's just too bad. If you didn't get it, you've now failed. That is really uncomfortable for people. Uh, and I honestly think that the compliance we've baked in makes you crave that you just saying like, we've already got, we're past that. Don't worry about it. You failed that. Let's move on. Uh, let's not reiterate on that. And that's not what we're doing. Um, so that also makes things a little bit uh, less simplistic. And I think lends itself really well to growing some of those things that we frequently talk about in people, which is having a growth mindset or having um, persistence or resilience, um, some of those things you can't actually develop minus adversity. And I, I honestly have always felt like things like we can't let anyone fail are counter in my mind. Like, like that's counterproductive because how can you learn if you haven't failed at something like then you are just doing what you already know how to do, which to me doesn't feel like learning. Well, it also, um, you know, you, we need to sort of demystify failure, right? Because if you make failure such a big thing, you know, if failure, I mean, I think what you're getting at is all, there are all these unintended consequences to our 
compliance and test approach to standardized testing, right? All these ripple effects. But then, what, so to take your argument, like, we'll, we'll move on. I mean, I think a place that we do that often is in math, right? Mm-hmm. We move on to the next thing, but there are significant foundational pieces that maybe we haven't addressed. I mean, that just becomes, a, you know, a repeated problem, right? So, but it's this ripple effect from worrying about grades, worrying about compliance, et cetera, et cetera, when in fact, what we want to build is like this foundational strength, this core strength, almost like you're working out. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you, I understand I need core strength um, so that you can, can then when you get to those next things, you can, you can rely on that. Right. And, and, and our system isn't set up to do that. I mean, Roland's and cast system is set up to do that. <laughs> well, we do want to, we do want to make sure that our system does promote risk-taking, right? right? We want kids to risk taking an AP class or to risk um, making a decision about their problem statement, knowing that it could fail, uh, knowing that they ha- they may struggle in the course. Um, but if it's, if it's um, so compliance driven, if failure is final and fatal mm-hmm. um, and, and it, then you're going to, th- these are, you know, Daniel Pink talked a lot about, right. In his book drive, what happens when, you create extrinsic conditions for complex things. People do weird things like cheat. (laughs) They, they play the GPA game. They'll take the teacher who's supposed to be not as difficult. And that's the exact opposite of what we want to promote. We want to promote risk-taking and we want to promote, you know, leaning into difficult challenges. We don't want to promote the path of least resistance and cutting corners and, looking for someone to blame when it doesn't go well. And so how do you develop that in children if you don't create the conditions where they got to lean into struggle, where they've got to take on challenges, but as long as they know that they can recover, but it's going to take standing right back up and getting right back in the game and refocusing and getting back after it, uh, then they're learning valuable lessons about how to be agile in life and how to overcome and how to innovate around the corner. Yeah, I think the pandemic serves as that perfect playing field for exactly that. I think especially for for leaders, um, you know, and thinking through like, how are we gonna do school when we're not doing school? Like we're we're only kind of doing school uh, and it's hard, it's hard. It's some, some are here, some are not, some, and teach some teachers are really great at being online and facilitating online conversations and, and building online community. And some are really struggling with that. And some people are okay being in person and feel secure and confident. And some people really scared to be in person and feel, and feel, you know, uh, worried and everything about the way we usually do things is different from the way we're doing them now. And so how do you build that same resiliency and that same um, comfort with risk and, and innovation and being disruptive during a pandemic is really important, but I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen both in East Central and in CAST. So I, wanna, I want you guys to tell us a little bit about how the big shifts that have happened during this pandemic. I think that teachers are, it, like we've already said, it's a complicated profession and it's complex. 
super rewarding. I honestly think it's the greatest job that anyone could ever, ever have. Um, honestly, like I, that's not trite. That is my earnest emotion around the field of education. Um, but I think people also get burnt out. Um, I think it's a helping profession. And sometimes in helping professions, people struggle with sticking with it over long periods of time because it's draining. It's emotionally draining. So especially during a pandemic, how do you keep people with it? How do you, how do you engage teachers in a way that makes them feel like this is worth the risk? You know, Jen, the, the yeah. thing about being an educator is that in the last, at least in my 25 year career, you know, I've said this public, publicly a lot of time, many times, but at least in the last five years for certain, I've never felt more attacked for being a public educator, more blamed, um, more um, disregarded, more distrusted, uh, more marginalized, quite honestly. And um, when you think about the, the conditions teachers find themselves in as a profession, where they're encouraging their children not to pursue a career in education, right? Because of their experience in most recent years. And then you compound that with now being in a circumstance where everything's unfamiliar. What I was so good at for the last 20 years is no longer going to work in this environment. Um, that I'm going to have to adapt really rapidly to being able to stand up what I do in a remote environment and know that what I used to do face-to-face -face isn't going to engage in the same way in a remote environment. So I'm going to have to add to my tool bag. And then really quickly, I'm going to have to have face-to-face -face remote synchronous and in a 48-hour period, circle back to the ones that may have engaged on their own asynchronously and give them all feedback and make sure that they all have what they need, right? So the reality of it is we're asking teachers to do something that is impossible for them to do, particularly for the long haul. And we're in this for the long haul, for sure this year. For sure. And so I think it starts by acknowledging that we're asking, asking teachers to do an unbelievable amount of work. That if we don't equip them, if we don't create conditions where they have two-way opportunities to express their needs and that they'll be heard. If we don't give them the gift of time in the way that we've organized ourselves so that they can have work-life balance and still prepare high quality instruction consistently, that we don't encourage them to truly share the responsibilities daily with their colleagues through their PLCs. That we're not going to look at your data and compare it to others so that you feel compelled to have to do everything for my kids. Cause I'm going to be held accountable for my little group as opposed to all of us for one and one for all, right. That, you know, to many hands, the load is light and we've got to organize ourselves to, to make sure that the structures and systems we put in place match what we're saying so that we are consistently evolving as we work through this pandemic to create the most optimal conditions for teachers that we're encouraging them and believing in them and supporting them and that we're not treating them all in a way that is blanket monkeying expectations, you know, because we've got two to 5% that aren't representing the best of us, right? We're dealing with those in private, but we're empowering the group 
right? And oftentimes that's another piece. We, we put out a new policy or a new memorandum because we had one or two folks falling short. Now everybody's got to turn in the lesson plans on Monday on the same template. And we just can't do that. We got to be bigger than that. And it's got to start with maintaining the eyes of the teacher uh, at all times. Uh, and again, giving them an authentic platform for uh, expressing their needs. And then we need to listen and we need to respond. So amen to everything Ron said. I don't think yeah, I, I know. I mean, I think, nodding. I'm like, yes, I think, you know, um, I'm just reading Lorenzo Gomez's new book, which comes out this week. And he talks about the, the, the sort of part of being a, a winning team with an inspiring mission. And I think that, you know, Roland is a great leader. And so that's going to make a big difference during a time like this. And I think all great leaders right now have to have sort of a servant leadership mindset for their teachers, all great education leaders, because they are basically sure. on the front. I would, I would nuance yours. I loved being a teacher and I also would never go back to it because I think the working conditions are very, very challenging. Like once you have had full autonomy over your time and you've been compensated at a certain level, it's very hard to say I would go back to the classroom. And I love teachers and I love teaching, but I think it's important to be honest that most teachers do it because they love the interactions, the human interactions. They are we shouldn't be asking people to be like Mother Teresa or to do a job because they love service, but that is in fact what a lot of teachers do. And so right now that joy, a lot of it is stripped. And so I feel like every time we meet with teachers, I always say like, what is the one thing that we can do for you right now? <laughs> I know you do too, Roland. <laughs> well, that will make your lives better, which is what led us to the testing, right? But the other thing I keep hearing is something that is, and the first time I heard the testing, I was like, okay, well, if I had a fairy wand, I would give you testing. But but then it actually came that we could do it. And I'm so grateful. Uh, yeah, the, I, think it's, I think it's important. We, we should back up and say testing, because every teacher that's listening is going to be like, testing, you're going to know screening testing. for COVID. <laughs> but let, so let me just finish my other point and we can talk about the screening. But the other thing I think that's outside our control, I don't know if you agree, Roland, is I keep hearing, you know, I just wish I wasn't having to teach in two modalities at once. And there are some creative ways to try to minimize that, but it is so much more for teachers. And so I think that, you know, the other thing we need to be willing to do, and you were talking about it, removing barriers, but is to like give people so much grace this year and really say, what are the big rocks, whether it's in a class, like what are the absolute things you need to teach in algebra this year and forget about the rest or because this is, this is an impossible situation and we need to be honest about that. So, so yes, we can get back to the COVID screening. (laughs) Well, for any teachers out there listening, we see you, we got to do better by you. You're in a difficult circumstance and it's up to us to challenge whatever it is and to buffer for you, whatever it is that is going to make conditions worse and and unattainable. And uh, amen. Yeah, we need to, we need to really hold our teachers up because I think if we can get through this year, some good things could come of all of this. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, we've said, I've said it a couple of different times. Like there are some things that I think we just hold on to from here on out, you know, and, and yeah, I think we should figure out ways to make it simpler to be teaching um, in two modalities 
or to have teams of teachers that want to teach in one modality over the other. But I think having having the option of having online content is just so great. It's great for kids. It's great for people who have chronic absenteeism mm -hmm. to go back and be able to get content that they would have otherwise missed. Um, I think it's important for parents for the same reasons to have parent meetings recorded and online somewhere. It's just a big bonus, especially for me. I'm like, yes, I can go back and, you know, I'm not great at catching every parent meeting. Um, my kids are in three different schools. So that's a lot of content for me to keep up with as a parent. It's nice to have those things. I think some of those things we can hold on to. Um, I do think that holding teachers up right now is really important and listening to their genuine, like hearing, here's the, th the thing, like going to the practitioner and saying, what is the one thing that we can do to make your life a little bit easier right now? And then acting on that. And that's where the COVID testing really came up. And that's the kind of testing we're talking about. We're not talking about any other kind of testing. No standardized uh, testing. <laughs> no, we're not talking about any accountability systems. We're talking about um, the frequent request for improving the safety, um, even if it's in perception, right? Like in reality and in perception, feeling safe. And one of the ways that we've we've heard people request are is to be COVID tested, which I'm like, yes, if we can figure out a way to test every single athlete, every single professional athlete in the country right. on a daily basis, for the love of God, can we not figure out how to test professional educators who have millions of small children in front of them every single day? Um, even if we're at 50% capacity, we're still talking about 50% of the nation's students who are being educated every single day. So, uh, so how did this come to be and what is it we're talking about? So, I mean, I think it's really important to note too, like, I'm super proud to be in a community where like government leaders are saying education is the priority. So our county is not putting money into testing athletes. They're putting money into testing schools. And that's the same for local philanthropy. And so, you know, I mean, I was part of the mayor's team way back when we did pre-K for SA, and it was important on a lot of levels, but partly it was just to plant a flag and say, this community cares about its youngest children. And I feel the same way about the testing. I feel like the fact that our leaders are saying what we want to invest in is reopening our school safely is such a, it's such an important flag. And so how it came about was we have a local nonprofit that's funded by some philanthropists who are trying to increase rapid testing of pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic people, essentially to root out people who might be carrying the disease who are not showing symptoms. Mm -hmm. So what that does in theory is it creates a, what they call a safety zone, an area where people have been tested. So, you know, if you go in there that nobody is carrying, you know, and not showing symptoms. And I think why that makes everyone feel safer is because we know that there are a lot of people who have COVID who don't have symptoms and they're super spreaders. And so if you can essentially root those people out, you've created a space that's much safer. And schools, as we were talking before the podcast, they are closed environments. So we're very good at keeping them safe. Otherwise, we're good at like hand washing and, you know, using sanitizer, and staying six feet apart and walking in one direction. We can do all that. Right. So if we can keep the folks out who potentially are carriers, that's just one more level of ensuring people that 
if they come back to school, teacher, student, nurse, whomever, they're not going to be exposed to the disease. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that was well, well said, Jean. And um, you're right. We're really good at all the risk mitigation <laughs> protocols because they're, they're rules we establish, they're routines we practice, and then we monitor and remind. And quite frankly, our students and staff have been excellent. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But in the interest of addressing uh, the asymptomatic or presymptomatic among us, which subsequently gives assurances to the adults who come to work every day and uh, hopefully eventually the parents who are, have been less comfortable with sending their children to school face to face. Um, It seems like um, what community labs has to offer is delivering on making that positive impact for staff and for parents in the community who haven't otherwise felt comfortable sending their kids to school. So, um, you know, I, I watched as they piloted in Somerset for the last month and a half. Um, and it seems like the, it's very non-invasive. It's um, for, at an individual level, really non-invasive. Five-year-old children are self-administering, get results uh, the same day later that evening. Um, it happens very quickly. Um, it happens really quickly in a building and with a population of students um, and then the communication piece happens and we get the, the any positives um, communicated with and uh, provided the direction that they need from Metro Health, et cetera. And everybody uh, is uh, even better than we were with all of the risk mitigation being implemented so reliably. Um, and so I, I think it's a, a great option. I think it's a fantastic that we have it available to us. Um, through the nonprofit organization. And um, we're excited about being able to pilot uh, right along with CAST uh, here in East Central and see where it goes. I know that my preliminary discussions with some focus groups in the community, uh, that staff and parents uh, have been really positive. That's great to hear. I've, I haven't done any focus groups that I, I get these random teacher texts, you know, that are really positive, just like, thank you. You know, I have parents who I'm caring for, medically fragile relatives, or, you know, all kinds of reasons why people are fearful that they might be, you know, unwittingly spreading the disease. So, yeah, I think it's really, it's really awesome. And it's also very courageous. I think anytime somebody says like, we're going to take on this big new thing, whatever it is, it's always an act of courage at the beginning to just say, yeah, this is what we're doing. So I just want to say thank you. Um, for being courageous leaders and for answering questions. Cause you know, the other thing educators are fantastic at is having like thousands of questions and, <laughs> and wanting thousands of answers as quickly as possible. Um, and so I know that you have both endured rounds and rounds and rounds of question answering, um, not just around COVID testing, but around reopening schools in general, and then opening a school during a pandemic, very specifically, um, which is... People think we're crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you kind of are. I mean, we kind of are. (laughs) Um, But it's been, it's, it's exciting, too. And I think, I think this is the way we change. We change the way we do things for the better um, is just living out an act of courage, right? And teachers have been really courageous this year um, Mm -hmm. because despite the questions and the worry, 
And the angst that sometimes comes along with teaching, they come every day. They're there. They're showing up. They're showing up online. They're showing up in classrooms. Um, I know when Dr. Fuller, Wendy at Kessley, her kickoff PBL uh, was an author who wrote a book, Thanks for Coming In Today. And it's hospitality um, industry. And, you know, it's what mattered most to him and one of his employees was hearing him thank each and every guest for just coming in today. And it, it meant something to him um, that changed the way he practiced his own profession as a leader. And I feel like that's what we should be doing for our teachers is just saying, man, thanks for coming in today, every day, um, despite all of the things that make teaching complicated. And for our students too, because our students are like showing up every day too. And Wendy has great attendance, CAST has good attendance. Um, and it's not, it's, it's complicated for them too, between being at home and being easily distracted um, or staying attentive online is not hard. That's, that's hard for me to do. Like I am my Zoom calls. I'm sometimes like, oh my gosh, I have, there's so many things going on behind my computer screen that I wish everybody could see um, because it's super it, you know, it's, it's hard to be attentive and focused um, when you're not live in person. And yeah. so I only know the parent side of things, the teacher side of things, and vicariously the kid side of things through my own children. But I imagine the leader, the big leader side of things is just as complicated. And thanks for showing up anyway, and making the tough calls and having the, the, thousands of conversations that I imagine you both have. Um, so before we jump off, because we're, we're nearing our time, um, how are you guys doing? What would make your life easier right now? I, I don't know. I think it's fantastic. I'm, I mean, there's, I mean, if I'm being honest, there are so many things that we've talked about in, in education for so long and in here in East Central for so long that we've aspired to accomplish uh, and all of a sudden, everything's a possibility, right? <laughs> One of the things that I said during our leadership retreat in August was, you know, our instructional technology specialist, Mary Ray, has been trying like heck to take volunteers who are willing to stand up a Google Classroom for seven years in <laughs> 30 days to have 770 Google Classrooms. I mean, my God, and where we are today, I mean... I'm going into classrooms where you've got students working in teams and there's three kids here present. There's two kids on zoom and they've got a, and they're interviewing somebody for the work that they're doing at the same time. Right. And this is the kinds of things that are happening in the classroom. All of a sudden, um, a lot of iteration, a lot of risk-taking, a lot of trial and error. We're learning so much from the kids. We're learning so much about our own ability because we didn't have to use technology before. Now we're learning about so many opportunities for operational efficiency um, and increased engagement of our audiences. And uh, I, I just, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I don't like that we're in a pandemic, but as an educator, I love this mess. It's, fantastic because we're not going to be the same on the other end and yeah. I hope a lot of this sticks I agree with Roland I mean I I think that if we waste this pandemic we will be that would be a real tragedy and there are some things that we've done away with like the emphasis on the standardized testing would be like the number one in my mind that I hope that we really 
take a hard look at, like, why are we doing that? How is it really helping our young people? What are we really measuring, you know? Um, so if, if we were able to hold on to some of those, you know, it was one of the first things to go. Yeah. And, and why was that? I mean, do we deep down really realize that this isn't actually telling us much of anything? So I would, I would love it if we could come out on the other side. Um, and I think there's a lot of other good things. We've spent some time in this last hour talking about like really asking people what they need. And, you know, I think Roland said, I see you, I hear you. Those are such important words in education, both to our teachers and to our students, because it is such a human profession and you really put your, your whole self on the line every day. So I, I think a lot of good is coming from this pandemic. I mean, if you ask me selfishly, what is the one thing I would like? I would like to send my kids back to school. <laughs> <laughs> same, Jean, same. <laughs> because I think they do better when they're in school. And I, you know, and I actually, I said this, I think before we got on, but I do think schools are safe. Um, mm -hmm. I understand why there are guidelines and protocols about how many students we're allowing back. And I'm not saying we need to rush any of that, but I think schools have done an excellent job of stepping up at their own cost, right? And making, you know, the schools as safe as they possibly can be. So I would really, like, if I had one wish for the city of San Antonio, I'd like, let's do all the testing and then let's put the kids back in school. <laughs> you know, let's not wait for a vaccine. Let's just say this is the, let's deal with this, the facts on the ground, which are, we have a pandemic, we have ways to make it safer. And let's, you know, do the very best we can for our young people and our teachers. Yes. Guys, thanks so much for jumping on a call with me. Of course. I want to say thanks to Roland for being willing to open a school during the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> want to open another one? Hey, you know, I might just be crazy enough to do that. Yeah, exactly. No, I appreciate you both very much. I appreciate uh, collaborating with you guys and, uh, talking shop with you guys uh, and uh, your, your brilliant minds and your brilliant educators and uh, you sharpen me for sure. Thank you. Thanks guys. I'm Jen Maestas and you're listening to Miseducation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.